You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate, and Errol Parker, editor at large. What's going on, Errol? You're enjoying this run we've had of not interviewing anyone involved in federal politics? I have, but one thing that's really been bugging me as of late is that I can't really get too much work done because of my commitments to the SCS, you know, with these big floods coming down the Diamond Tana. You know, it really is a perfect storm, as they say, you know, what's happening on world markets these days, you know, what's happening with the cost of living crisis. Down here in Batuta, we are kind of at the confluence of uh, three big minor rivers, the Diamond Tana, the Georgina, and of course Cooper Creek, and they're all in major flood at the moment. So I guess uh, I've been quite busy doing that out on the tinny, but I'm just glad the farmers are happy, Tom. It's so good to see them smiling again, isn't it? I know, I know. It's been a tough couple of years, especially on the border there, getting across the border. It's been tough. I believe if you were working in agriculture in that Moree kind of area, you'd have to have dogs on the tray. That was the only way the police would let you through because they knew no one uh, would be going camping with a tray full of dogs. Well, I'm just glad that for the first time since 2010, we're going to be growing rice in the Diamantina again, which I guess is... um, it has been a long time coming, but we do have a lot more water now that most of it isn't being, you know, put into bottles and taken over to the Cayman Islands. And, and you know, it brings us uh, to an interesting conversation we need to have in Australia with the changing climate and, you know, the uh, and of course, the post-pandemic tree change. A lot of different industries popping up, either by chance or, you know, by communities having to change what they're doing. One community that comes to mind that was ahead of the trend on this is Mudgee. Mm. New South Wales, once known as a, uh, I guess, a bit of a hidden kind of grazier's paradise, it then became the wine region, the first kind of, you know, Sydney weekender, if you were into wine and cheese. And then, of course, it kind of, the wine started getting a bit overshadowed by the mines. A similar thing happened Mm. in the Hunter Valley. You know, you don't really hear about Hunter Valley wines as much anymore because there's usually a little bit of coal dust uh, you can kind of taste that in the aftertaste. Of yeah, them. but if you get down to the Woolpack Hotel in Mudgee, it becomes very obvious where the money's flowing in from. Yeah. And um, the high-vis starts to outnumber the puffer jackets. Oh, yeah. And the place really changes. Certainly, yeah. and, and the demand for you know your usual pub staples gives way to what those people want, and that is high quality, but also Australian Chinese food. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bundy and Coke on tap is a real joy when you head into those communities. The draft, the Bundy drafts. <laughs> really fresh and particularly sugary. It's like there's a pipeline straight from the Bundaberg sugar cane. And you drink it all night. So you, you know, of an evening, a celebration, 21st wedding, grand final win, you'll drink 12 of them. Like mm. 12 schooners of draft rum and coke. When was? <laughs> can you imagine how you'd be feeling if you'd sat down to 12 cans of coke? Like it would... <laughs> well, like... Until I uh, I moved back to Australia and really started to get on the Bundaberg and Coke off the tap. The only other feeling I can really describe it as is when I was five years old and I put a paper clip in the PowerPoint. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how you do feel the next and day. And it absolutely rocked my world. It and that's what you. it did you. to me for the 12 to 24 hours after I'd stopped consuming. The heart palpitations, everything. Yeah, it helps you fight as well. Mm-hmm. The red wine in Mudgee, the Mudgee Mud, 
not renowned as fight juice. No. But you get that sugary stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The, well, that's the old saying they say in Western Queensland, if you can't fight on rum, you can't fight. And, and I think Mudgee is one of those towns down <laughs> south that has taught us that is very much the case. It's, and it's good to have the Bundaberg draft to counter the Mudgee Mud, as you said. But we, we're getting carried away here talking about the delicacies of rural Australia. We should introduce today's guest who, if you weren't able to deduce from that exchange, is from Mudgee, is an expert somewhat on uh, changing economies in the bush mm. and uh, you know changing identities in the bush and changing identities of an individual. He's, I guess you'd say, a pioneer of youth journalism in Australia. Is that a mm. bit too... Uh, is that something you want to nail your flag to? Is that yeah, something you want no, on your CV? Yeah. That pretty much sums it up. Okay. Yeah. Pioneer of youth journalism. He's hosted Triple J's Hack. He's hosted the briefing on the ABC. Did I ever see you do a Q&A? Did you ever get a Q&A? No, never got the Guernsey. We did like a youth version of it, Hack Live. Right. On top of that, you've basically been in a household name in Australia for the best part of a decade. And I'm going to say your name now for people who haven't actually heard, who have heard us talking for 10 minutes before we even introduced <laughs> you properly. Tom Tilly, thank you for joining the Batuta Advocate Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I wish we could have talked about the growing motocross industry in Mudgee as well, but it feels like we're running out of time for that sort of economic agro um, finance chat. At the start, I just wanted to really go back to what Mudgee was like when you were a kid, obviously, like in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm. It was probably pre the wine boom but um it was certainly coming up and you're probably one of the only youth journalists in the country that can lay claim to spending much of your early life in a house without running water tom Mm. i mean there was one part in your book towards the start where you were describing having to empty out the thunderbox can you tell us what that is yeah so a thunderbox is um it's a pretty um, ancient device that you can, um, when you don't have a toilet. So my dad had a choice of buying us a nice established brick home, you know, in uh, In Mudgee. South Mudgee. Uh, yeah, to the southeastern edge of Mudgee. That was one option? That was one option near the, um, to- the Toyota dealer. Near the Toyota dealer. Yep. Okay. Uh, yep. The Mad Mile. And the chain- chainsaw yep. shop. Anyway, so 12 acres comes up on the edge of town with nothing on it. And he, he's like, 25 grand bargain so he jumps on that says no to the established home with showers toilets electricity running water and we move into a caravan and the caravan has a bit of a leak it's may june in mudgy which is as you might know fucking cold yeah so i'd take at that time of in that period you'd be buying north of the town then so you'd be up on the hill so yeah we were near three poles down on the south side of town so this was on the new side overlooking the wine on the yep. other side of town. So you look into town, you see the beautiful steeples of St. Mary's Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, maybe the top of the Regent Theatre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kelly, Kelly's um, Pub, shout out to Kelly's Pub, <laughs> the Irish pub in town. Which yep. at the time was probably the Sydney. You know it. Or the Waratah. Became the Waratah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, so we lived up there. So we, we move on to this block of land. And I don't think we were necessarily poor but suddenly we're shitting into a thunderbox in the wind yeah we haven't we haven't gotten to the full-blown description of the thunderbox it is it's a bucket it's a plastic box with a bucket in it with a toilet seat on on the bucket so once you fill it up the whole family does what they need to do Um, on a daily basis it might fill up every day or two you lift up the toilet seat lid underneath you can slide the bucket out of the box and you carry it to where you dump it so dad had (laughs) Not too close to the caravan, hopefully. 
<laughs> well, close to the orchard. So dad had planted these lovely trees, dug a few trenches, and okay. we would sort of lay the bucket out into the trenches. Okay, like kind of uh, early Melbourne Chinese migrants with the uh, vegetable markets kind of set up. It was was this was this to Not sustain, familiar, but yeah, was this to sustain yourself like um, well, gold rush era? It had that kind of vibe to it, and yeah. and Mudgee and Golgong in particular still had a very much a gold rush, yeah, kind of yeah. post gold rush yeah. kind of energy. But we also um, we didn't have a bath, so the only infrastructure Dad had put on the place was a corrugated iron water tank that he'd taken off a job. He was yeah. a fencing contractor, right. had his own fencing business. And so we would uh, get some water out of this rusty old corrugated iron tank, fill up this old tin washing tub, put that on the open fire and heat that up and that was our, our bath for the whole family. So one by one, we would strip youngest, off. Youngest to oldest? Uh, well... <laughs> I wasn't that keen initially, but then I realized we were all going to be using the same water. So yeah. you'd put the hand up to try and go first. Yeah, because that's where the age-old expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater comes from. Because by the time <laughs> they'd have the whole family had washed, the baby was last. So right. let's not throw the baby out because it's so dirty by that point. So you weren't the baby being thrown out in the bathwater. You were jumping well, in first. Yeah, thankfully I was the eldest. So okay. um, as of far four? as I know. Of four? Uh, uh, three at that stage. Yeah. And then they had a late one. We yeah, had yeah. the fourth. I think yeah. mum was 39. Yeah. By that stage, we'd moved into the shed. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is all on the way to being in a house at one point. Yeah. But dad was sort of an owner-builder bringing in tradies okay. for the, the difficult parts. So it took us four years, years to build what was eventually a really nice house. Um, rammed earth, ahead of its time. Yep. Western way Red ahead Cedar. Of its time. Yep. Some good use of corrugated iron, which has become more trendy later on. Mm-hmm. Kept a few tradies in work, but Dad did a lot of it himself. But in the meantime, we lived in this shed. Half of it was a workshop. The other half of the ground floor was sort of the living space and upstairs yeah. were some bedrooms. And um, that's where Mum and Dad conceived the fourth child okay. upstairs. And There was no barrier between our bedroom and theirs, but they, they got one away. Okay. And, um, you know, they must have got good <laughs> at it too without, you know, hiding in plain sight. But I, I, I do want to clarify to the listeners... Here. That wasn't in the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he didn't know. He didn't know. They, they were, they were yeah. you know, it was discreet. I do want to clarify, your parents weren't like anarcho-primitivists. They were, the way you write about it, is mm. they had been caught up in the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And when it was time to form a family and kind of um, settle, yeah, they still had a little bit of that kind of free spirit edge. Yeah. And they went looking for... Greater meaning. And by the way, we haven't been stalking Tom Tilly. If you don't know by now, he has a uh, memoirs he's just released called Speaking in <laughs> yeah. Tongues, which this, we're talking yeah, about right now. A, and this uh, is all on the Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're just rolling through yeah. the Wikipedia. We went out to Budgie and asked everyone. <laughs> An unabridged conversation before we go to the pub. <laughs> you get a lot of this in the Woolpack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we went to Mudgie and asked everyone what they know about Tom Tilly. But um, this is your book, Speaking in Tongues. Your parents found community and purpose yep. and everything they were looking for in a rather infantile iteration of what we now know as Australian Pentecostalism. The name of those churches, it wasn't Hillsong, but it wasn't the Mudgy Life Church. Well, Dad set up the Mudgy Branch. So okay. so the church we were in was called the Revival Centres and it was started by this very charismatic guy, believe it or not, <laughs> um, um, a Melbourne returned soldier from World War II called Lloyd Longfield. Okay. So he joins the Commonwealth Revival Crusade, rises up through the ranks, starts to sort of jostle for power, breaks off, starts his own church in 1958 in Melbourne, called the Melbourne Revival Centre. 
he starts to get a fair bit of growth. This is midway through the Pentecostal movement, which I've I've done more research yeah. about this movement that I didn't even realize I was part of. Yeah. Starts in LA in 1900, sort of spreads around the world, comes to Australia. So by the 40s and 50s, post-World War II, there's a bit of a boom. Yep. Billy Graham, the American preacher, is coming out to Australia, filling up the MCG. There's these waves of revival. Really? MCG? One of the biggest crowds ever at the MCG. Okay. And this is Pentecostalism. It's even, He was an evangelical, yeah, right. which includes Pentecostalism. Yep. There's a lot of crossover and some slight yeah. differences. Yeah. So this guy, Lloyd Longfield, starts to build this church out of Melbourne. His sister comes to the Adelaide branch, and then dad joins there. Mum is a Wellington girl from a grazing family. Yeah. Went to Kambala, came back to, to the country, bit of a traveled flower, overseas. Flower child, was there a little bit of that? She went to India, yeah. did all kinds of things, yeah. which she talked about at church, but in the sort of pre-repentance yeah. kind of era. That yeah. These were the sort of... The days yeah. where I was going astray. So, yeah, she wasn't like, oh man, I world. saw Hendrix live, it was awesome. It was, <laughs> well, like, her, face, her face was saying it was awesome, but her words were saying, like, and then I found God. Yeah, right. <laughs> I had a bung last year in a park and exactly. went for a bit of a walk. Mm. Terrible. Yeah. yeah. No, she had an amazing time and she, you know, the look in her eyes sort of told me that. And I sort of thought, well, my parents, they had some pretty interesting lives. My dad, before he joined the church, got called up for Vietnam, yep. didn't have to go, but had to cut off his long hair to join the army and do officer training, hated it, felt sort of lost, went and lived in Arnhem Land, met the Unipingu family, right. has this amazing time and then kind of finds God through the revival center. Then they meet in the church. Okay. So we're in Dubbo. Yep. That's where they sort of, you know, planted, yep. planted their roots by a, a white weatherboard house on Mitchell Street, Dubbo, yep. three blocks from the Macquarie River okay. near the church hall. We spent three or four nights a week down there. This beautiful community. Dad rises through the ranks. There's new people sort of hearing about the church in Ralston, Candos, yep. Golgong, Mudgee. And so he's interested, starts showing, yeah, I guess caring for these people, going over, running little house meetings yep. in this old school hall in Golgong, freezing, freezing cold in I winter. I can only imagine. Anyway, so Dad becomes the leader of a did, new branch did, of the Revival Centre, Did he get sent to Mudgee? Did the orders come or did he think, maybe I can consolidate all these people in, in a town like Mudgee? I think it was more him putting up the hand saying, yeah. I want to do this. Yeah. And yeah. him saying, well, you're the only person here with a union degree, so yeah. go yeah. for it. Yeah. So I, I want to kind of ask, I mean, I can see the archetypes that existed in your family from Mudgee to Dubbo, you know, the countercultural parents who found God. Adelaide's interesting that it comes up because I, I hear a bit about those early days of Pentecostalism in Adelaide. I know Archie mm. Roach got caught up in in that, and a lot of his music was kind of uh, early days of yeah. his music was kind of it's all those Germans there. Yeah, well, he see Archie Maybe. Roach was was homeless before he found this community. So I'm kind of wondering, what did you see? Where were these people coming from to your dad's branch? I mean, you, you guys were the kids of hippies, yeah, uh, who'd found God. But yep. what, what does a person in 1980s Western New South Wales who rocks up to one of these town hall meetings look like? Uh, some of them were people that were kind of on the rough edges of Sydney. So there are a lot of 25-acre blocks around Mudgee that yeah. people bought cheap yeah. in the 70s and 80s yeah. to start a new life. So there was a few families that sort of fitted that trajectory, you know, grew up in, say, the southern edge of Sydney. There was one family from Menai. They came out, you know, could afford a decent block of land, had had some pretty bad run-ins with drugs, mm -hmm. wanted to straighten themselves out, have kids, in a similar way to the way my parents are kind of settling down, yeah. I guess. So there was a, a bit of that. Other people with a lot of family trauma, a lot of family drama who were looking for 
you know, a different kind of family that yeah. could support them emotionally and spiritually. Yeah. So there were some people who'd really struggled. Yeah. And so, yeah, my dad was kind of a beacon for these people because he, he listened to their stories and he kind of cared for them. And as he presented it, kind of had an answer for them. Yeah. So how did big did it end up getting? I mean, I know from your perspective, you're a kid, this is your world. Mm. This is everything you know yeah, about this planet you live on. I'm not sure if you're one of those households, but I'm guessing it wasn't Simpsons Seinfeld every night. There are a few limits. Yeah. Um, we could watch The Simpsons, but not Home and Away and Neighbours. Okay, because that was The Simpsons was foreign enough that. Yeah. Well, I guess it had a range of themes. Like yeah. Home and Away and Neighbours are almost exclusively about kind of what my dad described as immoral relationships. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, pre-fornication, but yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And what did The Simpsons do every Sunday? Went to church. They That's went to true. church. They went to church. They, didn't Re- they bag their neighbours for going to church? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Reverend Lovejoy and Ned Flanders. But that's still your world. That's your social community. Yeah. That's your, your everything. How big is it actually from an outside looking in? What would well, yeah. they be saying about this congregation? So for us, we had about 60 or so in Dubbo. Yep. We go to Mudgee. We start with just a few, probably 10, 20. Peaks at about 30. Pulls back to about 25. Yep. But on the big weekends of the year, we would go to these big get-togethers. So as a kid, we would drive across to Adelaide. And interesting you were saying about Adelaide playing a big role because there were some huge churches there as yeah. early as the 40s and 50s. Mm. They were, I think there was something going on with the Pentecostal movement in Adelaide yeah. for sure. So we'd go to a camp called Karakalinga and there were about 1,500 people there on New Year. So as a kid, that seems huge. That's huge. That's yeah. You pack them into tents and caravans, yeah. that's like a... That's yeah, like yeah. a city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'd go to Melbourne and we used to hold the Melbourne annual rally on the Queen's birthday long weekend. And it grew to the size where they had to put it in the um, the glass house, which was the home of the NBL basketball team oh, right. of the okay. day. Yeah. Yeah, right. So pretty big, talking like three or 4,000 there. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, when I started writing my book, I was wondering, how big was it really? Like, yeah. was it, must have been like 20,000. And then I, I got the census stats, which I think would be an under representation. Yeah. But it peaked in 1991 when I was a kid. It was four and a half thousand, according to the census. So I stood themselves as followers. Yeah, yeah. I'd say there would have been more who didn't, you know, because it's not like there's a, it's not a tick box saying revival centers. You have to go through and fill it out in more detail. So I'd say there'd probably be more. Like it, it may have been 50 percent on top of that. So I'd say between four and eight thousand at its peak in Australia. And then they had these branches in PNG and Africa as well. So, so they were missionaries. They were missionaries? Yeah. And there were thousands and thousands over there, but I've got a suspicion those thousands <laughs> and thousands went to every church that visited their town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pentecostalism is interesting because historically Christian churches defend their patch. Anglican, Catholic, you say this in your book or you say this in the interviews you've had you know, about this time in your life where it's like people wouldn't have really been too shocked if you told them you were a catholic or an yep. anglican and, and socially acceptable yeah socially acceptable if you'd grown up in a religious household in the 90s you know we've everyone's seen a lot of families like that but you were in this pentecostal thing which a lot of people don't know about and furthermore to that you were in one of those ones that we imagine where they're yeah. speaking in tongues yeah like i mean everyone always said that about morrison he was a happy clap scott morrison was a happy <laughs> clapper but he was singing and clapping but he wasn't speaking in tongues you were doing mm. that and you spent your childhood doing that our church was all about it so this is what unique what was unique about our church and why why i called the book speaking in tongues our church was basically the only church that believed you had to speak in tongues to be saved so in scott morrison's church as you rightly say he was a fully fledged member he was saved but he didn't speak in tongues and that's not necessarily such a big deal like in in those other churches in most of the pentecostal movement 
it's almost like a bonus yep. to yep. salvation. Okay. You know, it takes you closer to God. It's a bit yeah, like no, a, well, yeah, right. It's almost like in the book how you're at that age where if it's your birthday, you'd be looking to get like a new push bike mm. or there would be some kids who would be looking for a Nintendo or a Globe or something. But it seems like in your community, the, the gift that you were looking for was to receive the Holy Spirit. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So the parents want you to receive the Holy Spirit because then you're saved in your own right. But yeah. I think it also confirmed their beliefs and this whole model that you know they were a part of made sense, which meant the kind of pressure crept younger and younger. So yeah. we were having these seekers meetings where you'd get in a room with some of the elders and you'd you'd get down on your knees and start repeating hallelujahs and trying to loosen the tongue so that, you know, supposedly God would fill you with his Holy Spirit and it'd burst out of your mouth into yeah. this language. It sounded like the sort of tongues you'd hear in the meetings, which were really nuance, rich tongues. Like these people really had their own languages. Mm-hmm. And so as a kid, you'd start to hear that, oh, oh, did you hear that Josh received? Oh, how old's Josh? Oh, he's nine. Oh, okay. Oh, how did so, it happen? Who was he? Who was he yeah, with? Yeah. It's like, like it's like the modern day kind of you know mothers groups where she's like, oh, is she is yours talking yet? Is yours crawling you, yet? Like, you got, yeah, you're having solids yet? <laughs> sleeping through? Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was a little bit. It was a competition. Got, yeah, got, got so, competitive. Yeah, yeah we, we I, I write about this moment in the book where we were out um, Maitland Bar. You know, yeah. beautiful um, on the road to Hill End. Yeah, yeah, beautiful rocky riverbed. Beautiful spot to speak in tongues. Right. <laughs> Or to get married. That was, your, was that your first time on the banks of the river? Was well, so that's where my seven-year-old brother right. supposedly received. And we were in this little meeting of the kids, this prayer meeting my, my brother receives. And I, I'm instantly skeptical. Yeah. Thinking that, you know, yeah. he's just trying to impress the parents. Yeah. Um, but there was no room for cynicism or questions. Okay. I had to get on board and just be oh, that's oh, that's, that's, that's amazing. Bad. Yeah, I'm nine. You're seven. How's that happen? And you hadn't received yet? No. Oh, and I'm like, I, yeah. either he's lying <laughs> Or God hates me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or he's testing you. Yeah, yeah. he's yeah. testing everyone. There's one part I would like to touch on is mm. that how we've, you know, spoken about how small this community was in Mudgee. <clears throat> what was it like to grow up as being part of this in a town like that back then? There's one part in the book where you're talking about, you know, how people in your church would go down onto Market Street and they would sing at the top of their lungs accompanied by a guitar and <laughs> a couple of rude and, shooters and driving like, past that <laughs> <laughs> and when you're 12 years old I mean even to speak in public you feel like you deserve the Victoria Cross yeah. I mean but like to sing religious songs at the top of your lung on Saturday morning out the front of you know the old Kellett store I mean like that's <laughs> How did you navigate that? A bit of outsider status, I'm guessing. Well, navigate's a good word because what we would do, we would navigate our way from the crossing into Toy World and navigate ourselves into sports power at the back of the store, which had a back door to Byron Place car park. Then you bolt out the car park and go and spend an hour in Video Easy or, you know, the fish and chip shop with the arcade games. Yeah, Yeah. okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we try and get away from it. Yeah, so that so. was an obligation. You felt like these things were an obligation. Yeah. So we did our best to avoid it, basically, because yeah. that was the most embarrassing part. And apart from the evangelism, which is what we're talking about here, which yeah. is the street singing, yeah. the door knocking, preaching, the pamphleting, yeah. we'd often be playing sport. Yeah. Right. So we'd be a few blocks, you know, on the safety of the cricket ground or the football field with the other kids. With the other kids. Okay. What I'm kind of gathering from uh, the revival centres is 
I mean, obviously every different branch would range, but sounds like your family were relatively moderate. I mean, yeah. they, they had their message, they had their light, but you weren't, you weren't cut off from the other kids. Yeah, so my parents were fairly liberal in, yeah. in the sort of spectrum of, you know, conservative to liberal within the revival centres. And also being in a smaller town, in a smaller branch of the church, there wasn't so much of a church community to live your whole life inside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's when I ran into trouble was much later on when I went to Sydney. Yeah. And it was sort of expected that your whole world was inside the church, whereas I, I'd actually grown up with a fairly moderate version of the revival center's lifestyle. And I also had parents that wanted me to be integrated in the community. So for the most part, the evangelical embarrassments on the main street were, were when the two worlds came like dangerously close. Yeah. Yeah. But most of the time... I was just an, another kid at Mudgee High, yep. you know, playing for the Wombats, getting on with my life. Yep. My friends knew I was religious and they knew that we took it more seriously than, you know, the friends that went to the Catholic church three times a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they didn't know the full extent of it, except yeah. for the two or three friends that actually came and saw it in action. And um, They didn't uh, come twice. <laughs> that's what I'm wondering. Like, that was after a sleepover. The, yeah. the, 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 the pickup wasn't, you know... Something went wrong and they came with you. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, not yeah. like, fuck, this is sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, it wasn't, that wasn't the yeah. reaction, no. Yeah. They no. never spoke of it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, so they, I rang them for the book. Yeah, they, they were good mates. So you end up in Sydney. So I'm guessing in this moderate kind of... Yeah. Moderate... But I can walk the two worlds. Yeah, you're walking... In, your parents are allowing yeah. you to do that. So you're allowed to go to Sydney and go to uni. Yeah. Did they basically... They've got four sons. Did any part of them think that my son's going to be in fucking India in six months? Like, or or that you guys were going to do the same thing they did? Yeah. See, my parents were... Did they were, safeguard you at all? Was they there were any? mixed messages. Yeah, right. So on one hand, they bring us up in this church. And actually, the church got even more hardline in 1995. The head pastor, Lloyd Longfield, decided that the um, the fornication policy wasn't strong enough. Yeah, right. Uh, it had been a temporary ban or come back when you're married. Yeah. He yep. upped it to permanent excommunication if you had sex before marriage. Okay. So that was the reformation within the revival centres, really. Yeah, but we stayed split. with the, the Catholic yeah. side and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. The, the, the smart people went with the more liberal side of the church, yeah, yeah. which thought it just a temporary ban was enough for yeah. fornication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we end up, you know, and... I, I think my dad made a mistake there. I think he should have gone with the more moderate branch of the church, but it split the whole jo- the so joint in half. He followed Longfield. Yeah. You're right. And so the church was hardline, and then they started dishing out the rules on A4 bits of paper, and it became very legalistic. But my parents were still sort of sending mixed messages. And so I go to Sydney. I start really doubting the speaking in tongues thing there. I'm yeah. like, I've got space in my life for the first time. After and what were, you, were you living in like a flat? Were you living I in was a- boarding with a elderly couple from the church okay. put me up in a really nice house up on the northern beaches fuck me yeah, yeah. it was a bit boring though <laughs> but you had space but you had space so I you- had somewhere to live yeah. and I wasn't I wasn't kind of ready for the like I tried to get a job at Yulon Coal Mine I tried to stay in Mudgee yeah, but they right. rejected me okay good money well, I was just seeing jet skis and Malu Utes. Oh, yeah. And, you know. and the boom was happening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, they're like, you, sorry, you're probably better off going to uni. So yep. I end up at uni. And that's when it starts to... What me and the church Finance? Uh, commerce. Commerce. Yeah. So I thought there'd be no money in journalism. So yeah. I was thinking, you know, advertising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, that's when it all started. I started to clash with the church. But right at the end of my degree... I won this cash prize from Clemenger Ad Agency for winning an essay competition. Suddenly, end up with two grand in my pocket. Okay, and I'm about to start my first job, which was at Deutsche Bank. Yep. But I had six weeks spare. I'm like, I've got two grand, six weeks. 
maybe I should go overseas. Yeah. And I wasn't dying to travel. And my mum rang me and said, you've got to do it. I'll lend you the spending money. So mum's mum was sort of pushing me to have these adventures. Yeah. And that adventure... You know, California, New York, yeah. meet some Spanish ravers in London, drive yeah. through Paris, the Pyrenees, yeah. Barcelona in all its glory. My life changed completely so, on that so trip. Tell me, is that where you launched? Because I know you later and you said that when you were in the Triple J world and the music festivals and stuff, mm. you were in a party scene. You were in mm. like a yeah, yeah. You, were in, you were in that kind of world. But do you reckon you kind of launched into young adulthood overseas? Well, what are we talking? So were were is- you partying? This is 21 years old, so this yeah. is me going to, you know, I'd been to the pubs in Mudgee with my schoolmates, but yeah. didn't drink, yeah. didn't drink at all until just before I turned 21. So on that trip was the first time I drank. So yeah, we're hitting the bars and clubs of Barcelona, yeah. but not getting hammered, like still fairly conservative, careful little Christian kid. And my revelation there was more of a philosophical one where I was like, ah, oh, I could be a good person, a good Christian even, following the more like loving, compassionate version of Christ yeah. versus the more legalistic hardline version. Yeah. So that's where my that was more of a mental leap for me yeah. than yeah. a launch. Yeah, okay. Then from there you come back, you take the job at Deutsche Bank. Mm. I just want to quickly hear, and this is, you know, for those who didn't know that you had this story, this upbringing, it's all in the book and there's a lot more to it. But I feel like what a lot of people did know about you when you were working in the media, in Triple J particularly, was that you had come out of finance. So how did you make that, that leapfrog? Like everyone knew that you'd worked in the corporate sector yeah. prior to finding yeah. yourself in the journalism. Wiki was up to date. And yeah. you, but you hadn't studied media like that. So Yeah, did well, you- I did it. I was going through so much change. So when yeah. I come back from this first trip, I'm like, I don't want to go back and be a banker. Like yeah. I've just discovered life yeah, in yeah. Europe in yeah. all its yeah. richness. You know, yeah. I've been on the streets of Barcelona on New Year's Eve with glass bottles and yeah. grapes flying around, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. Didn't want to be in Australia. Didn't want to be in the church. Didn't want to be working for a bank. Yeah. But- had no money, and I was I was still a conservative. You two grand for six weeks in five exactly. different countries. Got, got a big um, <laughs> debt to pay mum back. <laughs> and so I stayed at the bank for about two years yep. all up. That was during the time when it all completely unraveled with the church. Yeah. And that they were my hardest years where I kind of had to step out without the support of my parents, and it yeah. got, got kind of ugly. Right. Yeah. That, and that was because you did start to... I guess, doing what people do at that age. You know, you started going to these parties, you started going to Sydney Mardi Gras, you started going to all nightclubs and that kind of yeah. stuff and you were engaging in immoralistic relationships. I was. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't It wasn't like the hedonism necessarily. That hadn't really started. That, okay. that actually came in my 30s. Okay. I was still living a pretty clean kind of life, yeah. but I couldn't dig the future that was laid out for me there and it just felt so negative yeah. and narrow. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a scene that you paint in the book where you're at a barbecue with some people from your church uh, and uh, the girl that you're seeing at the time. And you just came out and said that I don't really fully believe in this stuff anymore. Mm. I mean, like, is that the equivalent of just throwing a dead cat on the table? That's exactly what it was like. It was like farting on a dance floor with, yeah. you know, yeah. bad ventilation. Yeah. It blew up the party. So no one we knew had voiced their doubts. Never. Or maybe they didn't have any. Yeah. But if they had, they hadn't said anything about it. So, yeah, I'm having this fight, this argument with my girlfriend. Our arguments always ended up the same way. Basically, you need to be a better Christian. You need to pray more, read the Bible more, and, you know, follow God. And then, yeah, it just boiled up one time. And I said, I'm just not sure I believe in all this. And so, yeah, boom. 
this big moment and did she, she rat you out she starts crying everyone's seeing her okay. crying yeah. i walk out of the party people come out to me going what's going on and this is where i just start coming clean with people yeah and my best mate from childhood is one of the first people to walk out and i said look mate i just got to ask you do you doubt this whole speaking in tongues thing that we do and he says oh mate look of course i do but when i do that i just pray and read the word more and um rebuild my faith and i'm just i just sort of thought that's a lovely answer but anytime you have a question do you just switch your brain off and just read the bible yeah 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 and i i I knew that that wasn't the right answer someone else comes out anyway these people come out to i feel like the black sheep it feels like my world's imploding i'm the only one who's admitting that i'm not sure that this is real yeah and from then I become kind of a marked man. Before yeah. I know it, the head pastor's sort of pulling me aside for a chat and it starts to sort of, the pressure starts to ramp up. Did your family experience any blowback because of, you know, their wayward son? Great question. So my dad, while, while I was sort of having this, I guess this war was erupting around me, he was in the pastor's meeting, my dad sort of questioning things as well. Right. But when it all came to a head, he still wasn't supporting me to leave. And he was saying, you're not going to sort of turn the ship around by jumping overboard. Yeah. I'm like, it's a sinking ship, Dad. I'm out. And yeah. so that's, that's where we ended up differing. You know, that's a long way from a complete divide where we're on completely different pages. But that was still very painful because yeah. at that stage, I thought they would all stay in for life and I'll be the only one yeah. to go. So you were excommunicated in your mind forever. Yeah. Yeah. They never cut me off completely, but... It was very awkward yeah. for a few years. Yeah. yeah. At this point, you're making trips back and forth from Sydney. You're driving four hours to experience this unpleasantness. <laughs> like, is that what's well, up? by this point, they'd moved back to yeah. Adelaide. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So after the split in the church, the Adelaide branch went to shit. Yeah. There was only like, it went from like a thousand members to like 20. Yeah. They all went with the other side. So my dad went and picked up the pieces. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sold up the rammed earth house in Margie, moves to Adelaide for the church. After everything. And then yeah. his firstborn son leaves. Yeah. And we start to go through some weird times. And so around that time, I quit the job at the bank, mm-hmm. take a year out, travel through Africa. I live in Amsterdam. Yeah. That's where I finally lose my virginity at 23. Nice. Then I come back and start the new inner city Sydney with, media life. With and, a bit of swagger. Yeah. He's like, he's, he's, well, he's, I still felt like a loser, to be honest. Right. Like I'm cruising around these, you know, those the terrace house parties where you bustle through the hallway out into the backyard and there's people from, you know, Suds, the Sydney Uni Dramatic Art Society and yeah. the, the left-wing activists and the young journalists. Some guys like, got a yeah. keg of homebrew or yeah, some shit like that. Yeah, there's a bongo on a saxophone, yeah. you know, yeah. playing with the DJ inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is the 2000s, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Paul's boys had too much K and can't move in the front room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're around the edges of the lounge room. <laughs> but yeah, this is this world around Sydney Uni in the yeah. inner city there yeah. and yeah, I was intimidated by it. Cause Did it feel like you're like, I'm living on the very fringe of society here? Like- <laughs> well, I just felt boring. You know, yeah. like my, my story was embarrassing. Yeah. My chat was terrible. Yeah. I didn't get the theatrics and the nonsense yeah. and the sort of... The banter. The, the banter. Yeah. What, were, we, were we being ironic? Were yeah. we like, mm-hmm. what was going on? Yeah. So it took me a while to sort of get up to speed and then... Also piece the career together. I was on Johnny Howard's surf team for six months there. Yeah. Yep. You know. Yeah. We were being paying good back then too. <laughs> the real value was a lot better than it is now. But eventually I get called into the um for some reason I had this meeting with Centrelink where the Redfern branch wasn't good enough. I had to ride my bike all the way down to the Maroubra run. Oh, I was right. like, uh, you gotta be here all day. It's job search training. Oh man. Okay. I'm like, 
but I've, I've got my first job on a film set, you know? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I, I started cracking into the media, thought it'd be documentary making, yeah. then got some part-time work in the ABC newsroom and thought, ah, oh, well, news journalism, it's not as exciting or as, you know, the storytelling's not as deep as, say, making a documentary series, but... You get paid, and this is, and you've still got those stripes because you won this big essay prize. So you you, you back yourself oh, as a writer, or nah, nah. starting from scratch, yeah, feeling, right. feeling useless. Mailroom um, stuff, or what are we talking uh, about? Yeah, like like the basically the assistant to the chief of staff. So picking up the calls from the camos, right? Yeah. You finished at Supreme Court. Where do we want them now? All right, okay. down to the Cronulla riots or whatever's yeah, going yeah, on yeah, on that right. particular day. Then I do some post grad at UTS across the road, and that's how I pieced a career together. Right. Finally scraped into the job at Triple J. Probably because they just needed to up the regional quota. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> Diversity high. <laughs> um, I just want to quickly touch on about like how you were probably one of the first people out the door in your tiny mm. community in Mudgee. And then there was another one, your friend Jara. Mm. He got the flick not yeah. too long after. Yeah, well, he actually got done before. When Sam received on the riverbed at Maitland Bar at seven, yeah. Jarrah was there receiving at five. Right. Okay. So we'd grown up with him. and um, He was like the Ricky Ponting of the Revival Centre. Exactly. Just, you know. yeah. The Ben Iken. <laughs> <laughs> the prodigy. Yeah. 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 He got a blowjob in year 12. Um, oh, no. And there was no chance that he was going to marry this girl to come back to the church. So he got... Permanently yeah. excommunicated. Post-Reformation. Post yeah. Right. <laughs> post the wrong side of Reformation. Yeah. And so we lost a few other friends. I actually had this friend that we used to ride motocross with. He was from Windsor in Sydney. They would come out and he was supposedly fighting with his dad. That's what my, my dad told me. The next time we went to Sydney to buy a um, Suzuki RM80 from the trading post, Hell yes. we see his dad and he says, oh, David's gone to prison. And so this was a friend of ours that I grew up with in the church, ended up in jail. He'd stolen his dad's bike and done an... Anyway, he ended up in big, serious trouble. Yeah. It was really yeah. sad. My cousins also left, but Jarrah was the first one who was really close to us who just got completely cut. Yeah. He didn't leave. He was booted. Yeah. You know? And we were basically told not to talk to him. Yeah. And that didn't sit right with us. So Sam and I, my closest brother, we stayed in touch with him. And when I got booted out of the house, that's another whole yeah, yeah. chapter in the story where yeah. the, the church boots me out of my own house yeah. because they said, if you don't leave, we'll make all the other boys leave because they're all in the church and under our power. Yeah. And so I rang the real estate agent and said, you got any more of these houses up here in Manly? She says, there's yeah. one down the road, actually. So I walk down the road, look in the window, ring her back and say, I'll take it. And so I called Jarrah and say, hey, man. need the church to get a house. Yeah. So I called Jarrah back and go, hey, do you want to start a new share house? I've got one just down the road from the Revival Centre share house. And he's like, I'm in. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. So we start up a rebel ex-revival share house and start throwing parties and Jarrah starts ripping ripping darts out in the front yard yeah. just for a bit of a spectacle. And so, Living. yeah, that, was, that friendship yeah. kind of meant a lot for us because he was shafted yeah. and it didn't yeah. feel right. Yeah, and there's a bit of who's with me. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much more in this story. You know, we won't even go into, you know, the Tilly family's journey after you, you know, got laid and started drinking piss. You know, your whole family had an, their own transitions and experiences mm. with and away from the church. But I want to ask now, which I don't really know if it's covered too extensively on record, is where is the Revival Centre now? Because uh, I was kind of getting to that a bit earlier. It's the thing about Pentecostalism and Evangelicalism is it's a consolidation game. You can yes. acquire 
congregations and move people over here, whereas the Catholics and the Protestants, they never did that. The two churches sat there and they held on with both hands to who they had until yep. everyone dwindled away. Whereas the Pentecostal game is a bit different. We've well, got churches merging. We've got yeah. the you know, assemblies of God. We've got Hillsongs picking up a couple down here in the Shire. We've yeah. got all this kind of <laughs> shit. Like, and it's a big, it's a business game like that. It's, yeah, um, yeah. No, totally. And it's it's defined by split after split after schism after schism. So, right. yeah, I mean, the Reformation was a, was a split in itself, but yeah. they seem to have a, happen a lot more slower back in those days yeah. where, you know, in the, in the 120 or so years of Pentecostalism, there's just every man and his dog has started their own church or yeah. split off from the previous one yeah so you know that's that's part of the hillsong story yeah. as well our church you know was formed by a number of splits so yeah. there were lots of those so yeah eventually so i quoted you that number from 91 yeah so we were at four and a half thousand when they split in 95 they lost half yeah so yeah. We're, we're now in the 2000s yeah since then it's the sense the last census figure in 2016 is down to 700 right okay so you know Maybe that number's an underestimation, but the trend line yeah. is down. Yeah, for sure. Big time. So 700. And like, then people at that point, you know, when they lose half, does that become another one or do these people find their own churches? The people that leave, some of them would not be Christians anymore. Yeah. Some would go to other churches. Some yeah. would go to a similar church. Some would go to a very different church like the Anglican Church. Yeah. I don't know if any of those people have started their own church. They've got yeah. any momentum. Um, they could have easily. <laughs> exactly. Well, they could be about to. Yeah. Well, um, it's an interesting story. I mean, your story is interesting, Tom, but also we haven't really heard that much about this journey of Pentecostalism in Australia, really. It's our fastest growing church, isn't it, I think, in Australia? Yeah, but compared to population, it's not growing that fast. It's just growing at a time when the other churches are coming backwards so much. So it's still only 250,000 Pentecostals versus 5 million Catholics in Australia, right? Yeah. But the difference is that Pentecostals go to church, Catholics don't. So it seems like there's more of them or or they're having more visibility or impact. The Catholics are like, you you should should see us at Easter, bro. (laughs) There's always that guilt, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a powerful force. Um, The funny thing is, so since I put this book out, I am just getting inundated with messages from people. See, I thought it was just the story of... Just my story and my family, or yeah. or the story of our strange little church. Yeah. But people from all over the Pentecostal spectrum, and even just a broader Christian spectrum, are writing to me saying, "Cannot thank you enough for telling our story." Right. It's like any kid that grew up in a church where they sort of weren't able to question things, yeah. or sort of felt like they didn't have real agency to make their own choices, is relating to this book, and and they're saying a funny thing to me, which I don't think is true, but. I'm looking into the meaning of it, which is no one's ever told this story before. Yeah, yeah. That's not true. Like there was there was a story, people in glass houses about Hillsong. Yeah. So people have written stories about leaving Pentecostalism, but something about this or the way I've done it or, or who I am, the yeah, person yeah. telling it maybe. A little bit of the mask off on Tom Tilly that actually you were one of those yeah. kids because for and years that- I knew you as the guy they'd listened to of an afternoon on Triple J. Talking about pill testing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. talking about pill <laughs> testing, talking about ISIS. There was a few years of that. Yeah, there was. Yeah, I even went to the Middle East for that. I mean, what's it like for you guys reading the book? You've obviously defamed me a lot over the years, yeah. but to get the full story. I didn't hear it from you. I knew you'd come out of a church, mm. but I actually, in my mind, it was actually during the time of Assange. So I was thinking more like family, like those Queensland kind of commune. I thought it was more of a commune right, you'd come yeah. out of. And I find it really interesting that you're able to 
give a voice to these churches that actually do exist in the community. They're not mm. cut off. They don't come into, you know. Yeah. Like, it's it, not that extreme not in that some extreme, ways, yeah. but then it is psychologically yeah. and emotionally yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. It's not a commune and it's not like the exclusive brethren who you can't use a tradesman who isn't, mm. you know, isn't saved yeah. uh, within yeah. that particular denomination. So it, it is interesting and it, it just makes you wonder, the people you've met and the people you've worked with and, you know, just in plain sight, how much of this was going on around you growing up. And that's the perspective of somebody who didn't grow up like that. And uh, I do think that's part of what you're feeling now mm. because not only is someone who would you know is interested in that kind of story and that kind of upbringing, but the people that went through it haven't heard it kind of broken down the way it is by someone who's fully, you know, you, you've fully stepped yeah. aside. Yeah. It isn't written by like an outsider journalist who's yeah. like, yeah. you know, I'm going to go through this whole thing with a scalpel. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the thing. I, I came to a few points in writing the book where I was like, oh, do I write the story about the pastor in the church that started a property development company that people say, you know, did some people out of some serious money. It's like, well, that's not my story. Yeah. I'm not writing an expose yeah. here. I'm not going <laughs> to all the bats things. aren't out here. You know, like <laughs> I started going through some of the... Um, I was like, do I look into all the Royal Commission? Yeah. It was mentioned there. And it's like, do I tell all that? It's like, in the end, I decided, I'm actually having a break. This is a memoir. Yeah. It's not a journalistic. It's not hack. Yeah. Expo- it's not hack. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. yeah. And so, I don't know. That's That actually seems to have worked because that's what people connect to. And that's what you... You write a memoir so that people read it and they see themselves in your story. I think that's what a good memoir is supposed yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not famous enough for a full-on biography. Yeah, yeah. So it had to be a memoir and it had to have something for other people yeah. in my story. But it's almost like the more you just narrowly focus on that internal journey. And that's what's yeah. so good about books, you know, different to TV. Radio can kind of work, but you can really sort of contextualize that inner journey. Yeah. I just want to finish with now. You're a young father. So that's yeah. come that's come in between sitting down to write this book and publishing it. Mm. Do you have any primal urges to this day looking at your kid thinking, Are we gonna take this kid down to the riverbank or <laughs> or are you are you are you feel completely removed from those uh instinctual kind of church behaviors? Look, the only thing I want to take from the, the church was the great community. Yeah. And you know, the fact that three or four nights a week we were getting together with people we we kind of loved and having a good time and that social support that came with it. But what I would like to do is to have that without this conditional love, which is what we experienced. Like, oh, we're a great community unless dot, 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 you know? So, like, if you can take the good from that um, without the sort of the cutting off, without confusing these poor kids about speaking in tongues. Like, I've had... So, I've, I've had people who are even relatives of the founding pastor Lloyd Longfield reached yeah. out to me and say thank you for writing this and yeah. we end up talking and it's like yeah well, I'm, I'm raising my kids it's like that's three generations away from the founder they're only just coming clean of some of this nonsense yeah, you know yeah, yeah. and so what a joy to raise your kids without confusing them about yeah, ridiculous yeah. things and just just hopefully teach them about life and yeah. get him playing for the um the Ramwick Rugby Club, yeah, and absolutely. Um, you know what are they called? The Randy up, Wicks, up the, the Wicks, Wicks. yeah, go the Wicks, the, the Green Machine. But um, <laughs> there was just one thing I was just going to ask you is that you know you and your brother Sam have obviously gone on to achieve quite a lot. I mean, for those people who are listening at home, your brother's got a law degree, and that's mm. not an easy thing to do. What were some of the positives that you think you took from growing up in an environment like you did? Yeah, I guess to start with, it was like 
a loving, supportive and safe community. Yeah. And so sometimes I look back and I'm like, well, at least we got through our teenage years without getting into some really crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Save that for my 30s. But yeah. um, <laughs> so like a safe, supportive basis to start life, yeah. like a good foundation. Yeah. And then we also got that we had to meet like the people I was describing who bought the 25 acre blocks or, yeah. you know, people that were drug addicts or coming yeah. out of prison that joined the church. Like yeah. you don't meet them in a middle class life. No. Nah. You know? Yeah. We were sort of broken out of that. So yeah. I think that was a beautiful thing. And that's, I was actually just walking down the street with my partner and my baby this morning. And we were, you know, there was a few comments about the, the coals not being up to scratch and that we needed to go to Harris Farm. And I said, I don't want to raise my kid to be a snob, you know? Um, so there's that. And then I think for, for us, we also learn how to question authority yep. and pick the whole thing apart and break out of an echo chamber, yep. you know? And I need to end up in one later on in the media, and you know. Well, but, you know, no. <laughs> you, that you, you, you. I mean, I guess you could say that that did help in your in your work in hack. Well, I, I like to cross. Like, I hate echo chambers because yeah. of what I grew up in. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, I grew up in the worst kind of echo chamber. Yeah. One where you couldn't even ask questions. So when I see them again, yeah, I sort of push back a bit. Yeah. So there's there's a bit of that, and I guess I learned a lot about family as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's sort of, you know, when I look yeah. at my parents, and my parents have backed me to write this book, which is shows up some of their decisions that led us down the wrong path. Yeah. But they were bold enough to, to let me write it. But we hung on as a family because they stayed connected. And when we had our baby, I looked at him and, and it sort of became very clear. The main thing you have to do is just be there and yeah. be present and be be connected. So I think there are a few little lessons yeah, yeah. along the way. It'll be interesting to regrets. see... It'll be interesting to see uh, the community you bring this kid up in, Tom Tilly, without the conditional rules that you uh, <laughs> you uh, could go the other way. Yeah. Gets Maybe. pretty loose. Yeah, you can do whatever you want, kid. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Thanks for joining us, Tom. It's a hell of a yarn. And as we said before, it's we didn't even scratch the surface on the you know the story of both you and your family and the revival centers. Yeah. Um, so available at all good bookstores, yeah. and even the bad ones because uh, we need to support all small businesses. In this and uh, big yeah. business, some big chains as well. <laughs> big chains, yeah. Yeah. big online, Amazon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course our ABC. Our so ABC book and is, uh, um, Louis Motocross Complex as well. Big okay. sponsor. Yeah. Oh yeah, actually, it'll be interesting <laughs> when you come back to when you go back to Mudgy. The king has returned. You put him on the map. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a chapter where I go back and jump on the bike again and come unstuck and so. Yeah. Well, at least that wasn't as bad as the Terrace House incident. <laughs> yeah. That really... That, yeah. The impalement. That sent a shiver down my spine. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Author Tom Tilly. Thank you. Thank you.